From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Girolamo Savonarola was a Dominican friar turned preacher, prophet and politician who lived and worked in Italy in the late 15th century. He criticised the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, despotic rulers like the powerful Medici family and the exploitation of the poor. He was, in many ways, very progressive. We might say his ideas helped lay the foundations of the Reformation and the Enlightenment. And yet, as today's guest shows through her new novel, Three Fires, Savonarola was also a fundamentalist whose ideas and actions were deeply unsettling. How did Savonarola develop his ideas? How did he rise from being a nobody to a very significant somebody? And why does our guest prompt us to reflect on the parallels between Savonarola's ideas and methods, today's council culture, and even the far right? I'm your host, Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and I am delighted to welcome back to the podcast author Denise Miner. Denise Miner is an award-winning, prolific, and talented writer. She's the author of crime novels, plays, graphic novels, short stories, and TV and radio documentaries. She's published no fewer than 19 novels, three of them since we last spoke, and has been inducted into the Crime Writers Association Hall of Fame. We last spoke about her novel Rizzio, which looked at one day in March 1566, when Mary Queen of Scots saw her good friend and servant David Rizzio murdered. Her most recent historical novel takes us to the bonfire of the vanities. The fires lit throughout Florence at the end of the 15th century and the fanatical Savonarola. Well, Denise, what a pleasure to welcome you back to Not Just the Tudors. It's so nice to see you again. You look very gothic. Your setting is very gothic. Well, that's how I think of myself. <laughs> I like the fact that you keep writing novels about the early modern period, which means we have an excuse to talk. Thank you for that. We talked before about your wonderful novel, Rizzio, which is obviously about the murder of David Rizzio that happened in the presence of Mary, Queen of Scots. But today we've gone back in time. We're in the 15th century. We're in Italy and we're talking about Savonarola. Could you just give us some basics of the time in which he lived and who he was? Savonarola was anti-Renaissance. He was anti-classicism. So he was really like the first modern Puritan and the first modern evangelical populist. So when I was reading about Savonarola, I was thinking there are so many parallels with the populist movements of today. And he really set the ground rules for it. He told people how to do it. I think he's an absolutely astonishing character. His great misfortune narratively 
is he was alive at the same time as so many interesting, charismatic characters. And he really, he must have been in the flesh. But on paper, he's very dreary. He's against everything. Whatever there is, he's again it, in the words of the Marx Brothers. And he's anti-art. He's anti-classicism. He's anti-empiricism. He was a Dominican friar who basically expelled the Renaissance from Florence, which was the hellmouth of the Renaissance, and banned homosexuality, banned art, banned vanity. He tried to ban all these things. And for about four years, he was very successful, and he basically ran Florence, and he did a lot of great things, very like the populists of today. He said, working people are not poor because they're lazy or evil. They're poor because they're not paid properly. People are not responsible for their poverty. He set up a credit union in Florence because he said the bankers were ripping people off. So he says these amazingly astute things and immediately segues into, we have to kill all the Jews. What he does is he garners loyalty and then immediately misuses that to get people to do awful things. And like most populists, once he gets power, he can't fulfil all his promises and ultimately is burned in a city square. So I think we have some clues there about why you felt that a novel about him at this moment in time would be something that we needed. I think in and of himself... I'm an atheist. No, I'm an agnostic, to be fair. But I think the thing about Savonarola is he did perform miracles. Even I cannot deny that or find a way to explain them away. He was an extraordinary man. And his oratory alone, that was the only thing he had, was his oratory. And through that, he captivated a whole city. And he also was responsible for the Renaissance because he expelled all these amazing artists and they had to go elsewhere and that's how the Renaissance was scattering seeds throughout Europe. I think if you write a book and you don't at some point fall in love with the villain, then you haven't written a very good book. And I do really love Savonarola and I don't agree with him, but I really understand where he was coming from, I think. That's really interesting because that makes sense of something for me in your work because We'll talk about his development and, and we'll think about this chronologically in a second. But there's an interesting balance, a juxtaposition, perhaps, of the fact that there's a kind of sense of denouncing his populism, his grandiose self-importance, his self-harm, and yet also demonstrating that many of his prophecies came true. It's an interesting tightrope to walk for you as a, an author, I would have thought. I mean, I think you could write the story where he was just a braying annoyance, but that's not a very interesting story. It's not very beguiling. His problem was he was alive at the same time as people like Lorenzo the Magnificent, who was the Medici leader, who was amazing and funny and clever and sexy. And he was just a very sincere person, which I think you might be painfully sincere as well. (laughs) <laughs> it's not fair to us, is it? Because there's usually somebody who's quite cynical or we've all been next to those people who drew the eye much more and you're very sincere in your beliefs. And I do think he's a character with so much depth and the cast around him are absolutely amazing. And really, because they were next to all these fireworks people, it's very hard to focus on them. Yes, he's the sort of the Rory Stewart of our day without making Rory Stewart into a Cassandra. 
He absolutely is. He's a sense talker. He takes an absolute position and he does set out the playbook for populism. But he's genuine and he does at a certain point start to question himself. He actually extends the franchise in Florence and deals with political corruption. But I think he is more than a lesson in look at what they're doing. He's more of a lesson in what would you do if you had that kind of power, I think, is the question that Savonarola really poses. And he is right in lots of things. He's not cynical. He's really sincere all the way through, I think. So let's think a bit about his life, because one way in that you create in your novel Three Fires is that those fiery, passionate criticisms of the Catholic Church begin with the rejection of a woman and a civil war. And these moments are absolutely searing in the minds of the reader and in your creation of it in Savonarola's life as well. Can you tell us more? And what made you associate them with the later kind of words and actions? Why did you make the link, I suppose? He was an interesting character because his biographies were written while he was alive. So they are quite fluid. They change as the way he sees himself changes. And I do resist that inciting incident of a populist being a single incident. But I think he was rejected by somebody who didn't think he was posh enough for her. And I think that marked him very much because I think that he was brought up to believe that he was a very special genius boy. We've all met very special genius boys. And he grew up thinking he was a very special genius boy. Now, what happened when he was about 17 was he proposed to somebody and she said, you're not good enough for me. And that was immediately followed by a really brutal civil war in the city that he lived in. And then he went off and he slumped into a terrible depression. But I think he denied that had happened. But unfortunately for him, when his first biography was written, his brother was still alive. And he said, yeah, he really fancied the neighbour and she knocked him back for not being posh enough. So that story was known. And then later on, he said he'd never had any cravings of the flesh. He'd always been this kind of deified figure. But I think seeing that as an incel kind of rejection, I think that kind of inability to deal with the buffers of normal life, we've all been knocked back, we've all been disappointed, but he cannot assimilate that information because he's so convinced of his own specialness. And I think that really propelled him throughout the rest of his life. I am resistant to the idea that there is one thing, but I do think it's more of a an example of his inability to bend to the world rather than the cause of everything being rejecting women, which is what incels say. But I think the parallels are so clear now. And there's something very interesting you do there when you quote her rejection of him. You say what she is supposed to have said and then you say, she didn't say that because women didn't say that sort of thing at the time. And this is an amazing moment for me as a historian. I'm like, oh, this is what we call historiography. Here we go. You've got this moment where you're going, oh, let's just have a think about those sources and see whether those sources might be telling us the truth or whether they actually might be lying to us. And I love that you put that into the novel. It was such a striking moment because it's an interesting decision also to enter into the text in that way. And so I was kind of thinking about how you made that decision. That's so interesting that you have a word for it because my touchstone in Rizzio and Three Fires was to not be afraid of being wrong. And I have been wrong, and I have been wrong in historical details in some of those books. But my great thing about, I love non-fiction. I don't want to know that you did a degree in this, and I don't want to read non-fiction where you're showing off to your academic supervisor and showing that you did your work, or that you did get into that 
obscure archive. I don't care. I just want the story. I'm interested in narrative. Being able to use an authorial voice, I think you can do that in a very short narrative text in a way that you can't. And also I want it to read as an oral storytelling. So I want it to be that you would say that historiography. Yes, because I think everyone's engaged in that now. If you're on Twitter, you're engaged in that now because you're looking at, well, that's from this particular source. But I think if you're telling a story to somebody, you would say, and then she said, get out of here, you're ugly and you're smelly. Obviously she didn't say that. So it's supposed to be that kind of tone. Do you know what I mean? That if you think about it from... Yes, but oh, she would have done, wouldn't she? Of course she would have said that. that exactly. What else can she say? Do you know what I mean? So I want it to be very immediate. It was the immediacy of the narrative and missing out all the bits in between the causal paragraphs and the explanations and the sourcing and just get straight to... This is the scene. It was all based on Borges wrote something. He wrote a universal history of infamy, which was an experimental column that he wrote in a newspaper. It was true crime. And he was quite embarrassed about it. And he said he wrote prefaces to different editions and they increasingly denounced the collection. And what he said is these are just supposed to be glimpses into the story. And it works so well. So it's a very short sort of potted history, these columns. And he doesn't give you causal explanations. And I wanted to have the kind of immediacy of true crime and the cheekiness of true crime, but actually to be about quite fundamental historical moments. So we've got Savonarola, who's a Dominican monk. He's become a Dominican monk in Bologna. Then he's sent to Ferrara and then luckily assigned to Florence. And during this period of time, you give the impression that he is looking for opportunities to be outspoken but really deeply uncomfortable in his own skin. And perhaps that's just being in your 20s. It is cringe-inducing reading about his mistakes. How did you go about kind of trying to find him in the archive, I suppose, you know, detect his personality or lack of it in the 15th century records? He's a very familiar type if you were involved in any kind of politics. He's very fraught. He's desperate for a platform. And when he eventually gets a platform, he's a bad speaker. We've all seen that happen. In my generation, it was everyone wanted to be a stand-up comedian and you had to go and watch people die. Technically, it was called dying on your arse, which is what (laughs) stand-ups did. And so he's a very familiar type. He's incredibly fraught. He really wants to do the right thing. And, but he joins the Dominicans, who are famously quite jolly. I had a cousin who was a Carthusian monk, which is a silent order. They're the monks that make chartreuse. And he was in the Jesuits and actually left the Jesuits because they were too jolly. (laughs) At Easter, at midnight on Easter Sunday, they would open half bottles of brandy and smoke cigarettes. And he thought this was absolutely appalling. I based him on my cousin Frank, who was like incredibly fraught. And in hindsight, very obviously on the spectrum. He's a lovely man. But I based him on Frank's sincerity and fervour. And he joins the Dominicans. The Dominicans are like this guy and they just make him teach. And he keeps thinking, if only I could get attention, everyone would have their minds blown because he's very, very brave. He says the Catholic Church is corrupt. Nobody says that then. It's vile. It really is like a horrible centralisation of power. And he says it and people are blown away by his bravery. So it's one small bit of affirmation of his grandiosity he gets and eventually he makes it to Florence, dies on his arse, and 
decides that what he has to do is get good at this, which I think is amazing. A lot of comedians will tell you they're not the funniest person they know, but they're the person who works the hardest at it because it's a real craft, oratory. If you have a gift of oratory, you don't get good because you don't need to work at it. You don't have to give the same watch for the beat points, watch what they react to. So he spends 10 years going to churches that don't really want him there and giving three-hour speeches to see what works and he does get brilliant at it so he's hard work he's also starving himself somebody should do eating disorders through the ages because i think byron died of anorexia savonarola very clearly has an eating problem but he thinks he's doing it for jesus he's also self-harming he's cutting himself he's binding himself but he thinks he's doing it for a greater purpose there's a fascinating continuity there and eventually he gets his audience But the magic is that the audience are in a very particular place, which is they are absolutely desperate for a strong man who believes absolutely in what he is saying and says he's got answers, which is the populist handbook, is you have to get an audience who are desperate enough to believe in someone who paints their face orange. Do you know what I mean? It's quite an odd such. Are you very strange looking and do you talk in word salad? We believe in you as long as you're adamant. And he's really adamant by this point. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. and indeed in his life we've got this balance of his character with as you've already mentioned Lorenzo de Medici and others like Mirandola and there's a sense that he is not the funniest person in the room he's not the most attractive and yet he builds that following and by the mid-1490s He's not just established religious authority, but political authority. He's helped establish Florence as a republic, even though he's not a native to Florence, he can't hold office. How does he do this <laughs> in the face of that powerful Medici family? I think he saunters into the void. That's essentially what he does is he waits for breaks in the soldiers and he walks through. So he does this amazing thing of he always walks everywhere to show how humble he is. And the Medici leave Florence The French are about to attack and he is part of the group sent out to speak to the French king. Now, because he refuses to take a horse or go in a carriage anywhere to show how humble he is, he walks on little old sandals. Because of that, he has to walk out to meet the French king. And obviously they don't want to just appear because the French will slaughter them as a disparate group. They don't want to come at different times. So they all have to walk behind him. And so these grandiose statements of servility become big things that give him a lot of power. And also he's so certain. 
It's the certainty, I think, that people are attracted to. And he does talk a lot of sounds. He says, the Medici are gone. We have to change the way people vote. He is the one who commissions the Hall of the 500, and that's because the franchise has been extended to such an extraordinary degree. But you're talking about Mirandola there. Mirandola was writing an amazing thesis, bringing together all the religious rites and philosophies of the world, and he was very young. He was an absolutely amazing character. And one of the religions that he was bringing in was Buddhism. And he was discussing various religions from the East. Now, the three fires that mark Savonarola's life are mentioned by the Buddha in the fire sermon. And he talks about the three fires or the three poisons. And these are the three character defects that will bring down Savonarola. It is fascinating, actually, that three fires is such a good name for the book because it absolutely marks these key moments in his life and that synchronicity with the Buddha's uh, writing on it is so interesting and a kind of touchstone throughout the book in many ways. I want to pick up on the fact that he's also getting to this position because of his prophecies and the line between thinking this is just a mad raving person and believing what he has to say is probably quite a thin one. And so I wanted to have a sense of why you think people believed him. Who are the sort of people who are becoming his followers? Do they like his ideas? Are they inspired by his prophecies? Immediately, it becomes a contentious position to follow him. I think of the snivellers, they were called. They were called the snivellers because they burst out crying when they heard him speak. And one of the reasons they burst out crying was because they'd never heard anybody say, you're not poor or sick because you're evil. So they're so overwhelmed by any kind of empathy from an authority figure that they burst out crying. They're called the snivellers. And almost immediately, they are in opposition to other groups who do not snivel. So I think of them as the deplorables. You remember when Hillary Clinton called people, said there was a basket of deplorables supporting Donald Trump, and people took it on as a defiant social identity. I think defiant social identities are tremendously powerful. And it covers anything. Anything you disapprove of, we can be that. That's bikers. If you think about punks, that was a defiant social identity. So snivellers, they adopt this defiant social identity. It becomes very defensive almost immediately. And it is supported by him giving these prophecies that come true. So he predicts that three people will die, and they do die, which is quite foreseeable because they're old or they're incredibly fat, the Pope's morbidly obese and very decadent and he dies. Um, So he gets those ones right. And a lot of the discussion about him being tried for heresy is him giving these prophecies. He also prophesies famine, which happens. He prophesies war, which happens. The French invade northern Italy and murder their way across the country. And then he starts to prophesy things that are unlikely to happen. So a very healthy king, Charles the Affable, who I always think of as John Le he agrees with everybody. Everybody loves him and then he murders everyone. And he dies in a very strange way, very unlikely, on the day of the trial by fire that Savonarola is involved in. Savonarola performs these kinds of miracles and they are miracles by any definition they are unlikely he predicts these things happening there's a battle between the franciscans and the dominicans there was a fantastic exhibition actually about saint francis at the national galleries this year and i hadn't realized that saint francis offered to do a trial by fire in constantinople to disprove islam 
And the ruler of Constantinople said, yeah, we're not going to do that because that's nuts. So clearly the Franciscans challenged, this is 200 years later, the Franciscans challenged the Dominicans to a trial by fire. And they're clearly expecting the Dominicans at any point to say, no, we're not doing that. But the Dominicans are so into it, they don't. So they build a tunnel of fire in the middle of Florence and the Franciscans are to walk in one side, the Dominicans another side. And whoever comes out unemulated is telling the truth. And everyone's expecting a miracle and they're spectacle starved because Savonarola has banned most theatre. And what happens is it doesn't happen because it gets delayed and then there's a rainstorm and it washes away what potentially would have been the, the tribal fire. That's a miracle, but it's pedestrian. They want fireworks. They don't want a rainstorm, but it is a miracle. And that's the day that Charles the Affable dies by banging his head in a very unlikely accident as he's going to the lavatory during a tennis match. And then there are other things, like when he's being burned at the very end of his life, he's dead, he's been dead for an hour, and they hang him up really high. And the town square is full of people that hate him. And as he's hanging there, being burned, and they're all jeering at his corpse, his hand rises up over the crowd, and he blesses the crowd. Now, you can explain that away, because he's wearing a cassock, and it fills up with hot air, and it raises his hand up like a balloon. You can explain all these things away, but they are still miracles. And I was struck by this sense that some of those who really become fervent devotees of Savonarola are those people most likely to see the world in black and white, which is teenagers. And that we're in a period of time in which there's a lot of them. It's a very young population. And the terror, she says as an older person, that you can feel from a rabid group of, I mean, I don't really feel this in my life, but I think that you can see in Florence the rabid groups of teenage boys pushing this hard line could have been utterly terrifying for people. Absolutely terrifying. But at the same time, almost immediately, it spreads out to middle-aged people. So there's a chemist in Florence who keeps a diary at this time. And he was an avid sniveller. And he was about 40 or something like that. And Botticelli was a sniveller. Basically broke his career because he's doing The Birth of Venus and then rarely paints again after Savonarola, after his involvement in that movement. But it's the adamance that's terrifying. It's the unwillingness to engage with debate that's terrifying. And I think you can say what you like about how corrupt Lorenzo was. And he actually tries to engage with Savonarola. And he sends him presents. Savonarola thinks he's trying to corrupt him. But actually... Lorenzo was engaged in debate and he wanted that to be part of the classical revival in Florence and Savonarola on point of principle will not speak to him or deal with him. So I think that the touchstone is not necessarily age, it's absolute adamance as a feature of the movement. It's a refusal to engage with debate or engage with the other side. And that, for me, that's what's terrifying. You see it on social media all the time, is there are people who are willing to listen or read or think. Most people are frightened. It comes from a place of fear. Absolute refusal to engage with another side or another position, or to empathise. And perhaps the high point of his career is the bonfire of the vanities. And at that point, he has the support of most people. And particularly, I think this is really telling that middle group of people who actually decide things in the end, the people who are willing to swing either way and will go with whatever the majority is saying. The tepid, which is most people, 
And I think that's why polls are so important, because the tepid will look at the polls and say, oh, maybe Bojo's not bad, or oh, maybe Keir Starmer's okay. And before that, they have an army of angry children that they've basically politicised through teaching them the catechism. But very quickly, they become irrelevant. Very quickly, the really young ones. I think the fire of the vanities is so interesting because the moment had passed, actually. The moment was the year before. So there are eyewitness statements about the year before. And they, they introduced this as a way to replace the festival that was all about gambling and getting drunk and having sex in the street. So they try to make it a holy thing. It's become quite a kind of contentious identity to be a sniveller. There are other groups. There are the bad companions or the proud boys who are very rich guys who go about making a big show of having money and wearing armour all the time. There are the tepid, there are the greys, there are lots of different factions within the city. But the year before, it was just a beautiful moment. There were 30,000 in the cathedral all singing together. They raised so much money, all in small coins, they said the year before. So it was all people with nothing giving something to the communal coffers. It was a really beautiful moment. And I think we've all been at the party that was a repeat of the original party that was brilliant. And it's never quite as good. I think in a political party, you must feel that very strongly and be very resistant to that. If you watch Donald Trump, his rally crowds are being filmed closer and closer to the stage because there just aren't that many people there anymore. The flavour of that must be quite heartbreaking for true believers. It reminds me actually of a history book that's just come out by Matthew Parker, which is called One Fine Day. And it talks about the one day in 1923 when the British Empire was at its greatest and yet it contains within it absolutely the seeds of its decline. And it's almost as if at every moment that you're at your maximum, your biggest expansion, that's where you teeter on the brink of falling down. So we've talked about the ways in which there are parallels between this world of the 15th century in Italy and the modern world. And your work is absolutely infused with these. And I just want to ask you, I suppose, how you decided where to insert these correspondences. I think at a certain point you just have to put your pride in your pocket and have a bit of flint in your heart as a writer and just say, I'm just making this decision. What makes the story go fast for somebody who doesn't know this story, I think, is the point. I just made a lot of cheeky choices and I just thought, does that work narratively if you don't know this story? And yeah, historically, there are differences between the bad companions and the proud boys. Obviously, there are differences. But the parallels are there and I think it makes it easier to understand that story and get immersed in the story if you think, oh yeah, that's a bit like that. I don't need five paragraphs explaining who the Duke of whatever was. You could just do that. Yes, and I admire it greatly. To close then, I don't want to ruin the climactic scenes of your work, but when you were researching his life and his work, did you feel in the end that it was a product of context of choice or of chance? Everything. If there hadn't been a famine, he wouldn't have got power. If he hadn't have been the man he was, he wouldn't have got power. I don't know how much choice he had in any of that. I think the very little affirmation he had in his first 15 years of life after his grandfather died was when he was brave and he said the unspeakable. And I think that kind of set the tone for the rest of his life. And I think he was a man in search of greatness and this is how he found it. He had a friend who was determined to be a martyr, 
Fradanenko. And for me, he is the happiest part of the story because he got to be a martyr, which is a wonderful thing if you're very religious. It's a wonderful thing. And I don't think he had a lot of choice in those. Maybe at certain points, there was an incident that I had to cut out where he made a very slack decision about whether or not five people should have been executed. And one of them was the son of his very close friend. And he just decided not to get involved in that. And the guy was killed. And I think that was a point where he did make a choice. I do think that power is damaging to your empathy. And so I do think that was a choice. But apart from that, it was almost predestined that he would do that or that somebody would arise at that time to question these very rapid changes that were happening in society, I think. Well, it is a wonderful read and I think that people need to pick up a copy of Three Fires and read it instantly because it is short, it is so tightly written, it is something you can enjoy just in an evening. And, of course, if you haven't read Rizzio, you need to read that as well. Thank you so much, Denise Meyer. It's so nice to be on again with you. It's so nice to talk to you again. So lovely to speak to you. And I just want to say, what as a final thing, there's a moment about 20 pages in where there's something so vividly realised that I had to put the book aside for a second and just sort of sit and calm myself down. And again, you do this in just so few words. But that ability that you have to bring the past to life is just extraordinary and I'm so glad that you have turned your amazing talent to making history so vital to people. Oh it's a joy, what a privilege to get to do these things, I can't believe I'm getting away with it. Long may it continue. (laughs) So far. (laughs) And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars, and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.